Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. There are a lot of voices out there telling us that we as a nation are more divided than ever. Now, I read a lot of American history, and I'm not entirely convinced it's as bad as it's ever been, but that doesn't mean it isn't bad, nor that it can't get any worse. The political polarization, racial tensions, wealth disparities, and other mundane matters have led to broken friendships and fractures in families and an increased distrust in unproven strangers. So what do we do about it? I wanted to see if there were some groups out there working to bridge these divides that we have in our nation. And here's the good news. There are indeed organizations out there helping to overcome this disunity. Two of these groups, Braver Angels and One America Movement, are working directly with people and communities. Another, the Bipartisan Policy Center, takes the think tank approach. All three, I think, will share some interesting thoughts and strategies for facing down this problem. So let's get started, and to do that, let's go back in time a few years. As you may recall, the mood across the country in the wake of the 2016 election was pretty tense, to say the least. Now, three folks saw an opportunity to test whether Americans were still even able to talk to each other, and if we could start to bridge divides instead of following the lead of so many and encourage those fissures. Uh, These folks held a red-blue workshop to bring together a small group of divergent, different-minded voters in South Lebanon, Ohio, and the success there led them to an opportunity uh, to start a new organization called Better Angels, then rebranded later as Braver Angels, uh, one that is still going strong. And with me today is John Wood Jr., the national spokesman for Braver Angels. John, why don't we start talking about that first small gathering? What did they see that convinced them that there was something here, that they could actually build a model to start bridging some of these divides? Yeah, absolutely, Peter. Well, in that first gathering, um, David Blankenhorn, Bill Doherty, professor of the, at the University of Minnesota and, and renowned family therapist and psychologist, uh, and David Lapp um, went about the work of gathering individuals from you know, a part of the state that had voted evenly, evenly split, for Trump and Clinton. And at that initial workshop, there was a question as to you know whether or not it was possible for them to find a basic level of, of, of human respect and, and common ground, given the fact that polarization was as incredibly vitriolic as, as you mentioned that it, that it was at the time and still continues to be right up to the current moment in so much of the country. Um, there were no guarantees that they were going to be able to reach each other across this divide, the various participants. But what happened in the course of that original workshop, and this actually took place over the course of about three days or so, in a barn, if I remember uh, correctly. I wasn't there for this myself, but it is 
uh, baked firmly into the lore, <laughs> you know, uh, of of the of the Braver Angels story. What happened uh, in that workshop is that through guided exercises, uh, each side had the opportunity to reflect on the stereotypes they felt the other side had about them, to talk a little bit about why they felt those stereotypes didn't necessarily line up with who they were as individuals. Each side had the opportunity to speak from the vantage point of their own personal experience in terms of why they saw the election the way that they did, why they voted for the candidates that they voted for. And what ultimately happened is that the fundamental motivating um, impulses and values that caused them to to uh, engage politics the way that they did um, happened to be human sentiments that each side was able to sort of relate to and understand in the other. Yet people on both sides who felt isolated and disrespected uh, by the other political party and even by people in their lives on the basis of their on the basis of their politics. You had distrust of the institutions, distrust of the establishments on each side of the divide, but you also had individuals who shared a common concern for their community and individuals who could relate to each other on the basis of their experience as neighbors uh, and as Americans. There's a particularly poignant example where you had an individual who was a small town uh, former sheriff and construction worker who had just voted for Donald Trump, an evangelical Christian, and a liberal Muslim who was, uh, who was an immigrant uh, from Iran uh, who had just voted for Hillary Clinton. And at a certain point in the, in the workshop, um, the former individual, Greg, uh, said to Kuyar, he said, uh, he, said uh, he wanted to talk about uh, Islam and religion. And he said, uh, I can give you my problem with Islam in four letters, I-S-I. And before he finished his sentence, uh, Kuyar uh, gently uh, interrupted him and he said, my friend, I know what you're going to say, but my religion has been hijacked, you know, hijacked by people who didn't share his values. And I believe that he asked Greg if he could think of, of people who had hijacked Christianity in the name of values or attitudes that he did not share. And of course, it wasn't very hard for Greg to reflect and realize that, that he absolutely could think of people who had perverted the religion of Christianity. And so the two of them came together, they formed a bond, they pledged to the larger group that they would continue to work across the divides to introduce their religious communities to each other. And after that, uh, Kuyar wound up paying a visit to a church service at Greg's, at Greg's church, and Greg attended uh, a service uh, at Kuyar's mosque. And so you know, this relationship inspired many people. But, but within that original group, to a man, to a woman, every individual who participated agreed that this work needed to continue, this work needed to spread, and spread all across the country. So that, even though the name had not come into play yet, that was where Better Angels and ultimately Braver Angels uh, was born. I'm sure there's people who are listening who hear that great story, you know, we hear stories like that every once in a while, but then we turn on the news and we see the exact opposite in much louder form over and over again. So what is the goal of Braver Angels? I mean, in, in I like to think that a nonprofit's always trying to put itself out of business, right? So how does Braver Angels get to a point where you can close up shop and say mission accomplished? What are the things that you do along the way to get there? Sure. Although I don't know that we would want for Braver Angels to go out of business, not so much because we want the problem to endure, obviously, but because what Braver Angels has come to be, I think, represents uh, an asset and a potential institutional force in American life 
that hopefully could always have a positive contribution to the body politic. And, and what I mean by that, by way of answering your question, is this. Uh, Braver Angels, you know, we began with this original workshop, this original red-blue workshop. That workshop had the effect of, of forging bonds between individuals who were differing politics in a way that brought them together in a deeper sense of community with one another. Now, you know, five years later, Braver Angels is America's largest grassroots membership organization of its kind, 10,000 dues-paying members across the country, 75 local bipartisan Braver Angels alliances, presences on college campuses across America, uh, work unfolding uh, from city councils and state legislatures all the way up to the halls of Congress. And um, what we are, in essence, is a community of practice within which Americans are coming together uh, in a understanding of who we are to each other that transcends the typical polarizing narratives of the partisan divide. And in the work that we do together, participating in our now wide-ranging suite of workshops and debate programs uh, and various other means of, of communicating uh, and, and refining our skills for communication with each other, we are developing norms for civic discourse, for collaboration, for cross-partisan and cross-cultural communication that then travel with our members back out across the institutional landscape. So in other words, our members participate in our experiences, they develop relationships across the divide, and then they return uh, to, their, to their communities. They return to their college campuses, to their corporations and places of work, to their city governments, uh, to their kitchen tables, right? And yet they have this community of like-minded, like-hearted individuals, let us say, because our political opinions differ. But they have this community of like-hearted, if you will, individuals behind them who help to reinforce our shared commitments to goodwill and what we term patriotic empathy. This idea that your love of your country is demonstrated by your concern for your fellow Americans. Uh, as an engine for ongoing constructive civic collaboration across divides within the context that we live in, uh, in our own part uh, of, the, of the body politic. So the idea here is to tell a story about what we could be as Americans based off of the, the transcendent work that's already happening in Braver Angels and a wider movement of Americans working across these divides. We bring people into our community to experience these relationships to learn these skills for being able to communicate in a depolarizing sort of fashion, to be able to connect with people across experiences. This generates new norms of engagement, and again, those norms flow back out into, into democratic society and into our institutional life, sort of like civic antibodies, if you will, in the bloodstream of American democracy, combating the bad habits of polarizing behavior from one institutional and communal and demographic context to another. So that's the vision of Braver Angels. And at the level of resources and support that we've had, at the, at the you know, by the way, our work is overwhelmingly volunteer-driven, overwhelmingly. I mean, I'm a member of staff, but we have a small staff that supports uh, closer to 1,300 uh, or so volunteers across the country, registered volunteers doing this work in addition 
uh, to uh, or as a part of our larger community of 10,000 of 10,000 members. And at the level of scale we've been able to operate uh, with, uh, you know, relatively shoestring budget given the breadth of activities that we do, the power of this community and the influence of this community and the places where it's been active has really been an incredible sight to behold. Well, I know you have a podcast that you've recently launched, uh, the John Wood Jr. Show, and it interviews some folks engaging in this, which I think was, is very compelling from what I've heard uh, and the interviews that I've heard on there. And then Braver Angels has a podcast as well. Is there any where, where should people go if they want to learn more? Well, you can go to a number of places. Of course, you might want to start at our website. We're at braverangels.org, and there you can read in greater detail about sort of the origin story, if you will, of, of Braver Angels. Um, but yes, you can, you, know, you, can, you can learn about the work that we do in the Braver Angels community uh, through the Braver Angels uh, podcast or our media page. Our, you, know, read, you can read articles and essays about our local alliances, stories about our volunteers and members and so forth. But I would refer people to our website uh, to begin to learn about the story and the work of Braver Angels and to see some of the opportunities for volunteer engagement and for support. I encourage everybody listening to become a member. There are all sorts of ways to contribute to the work that we do, both in terms of, of uh, activities and in terms of, of, um, of gifting. And all of it is very much appreciated and welcome as we head into what undoubtedly is going to be a new and intense season uh, <laughs> of division uh, coming up on the next midterm here. So you know, people true. are more than welcome. John Wood. Appreciate all of this and appreciate what Braver Angels is doing. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. It's easy for us today to cloister ourselves among those who share our views. So easy, in fact, we can forget that there are other perspectives out there. In the work done by our next group, One America Movement, 75% of participants in their program said that during the proceedings, they heard views they wouldn't normally hear from friends and family members and coworkers. Like Braver Angels, One America Movement leverages small group activities to bring together diverse groups for dialogue and for understanding. Uniquely, though, it works with faith communities to do so. Andrew Hanauer is president and CEO of One America Movement. Andrew, let's start with that big differentiation. Why, in a time when there's so many, this rise of the nuns, right, people moving away from participating in churches at all, uh, why have you decided to fix this polarization problem through faith communities? Yeah, well, thanks, Peter. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, a couple answers to that question. I think one is sort of more tactical and, and the other is is more uh, about who we are. So the tactical answer is that, you know, in a, in a snarky sense, uh, I think most political uh, causes would kill for the number of num- the numbers that we have. Right. So even with the decline in church attendance and and uh, other other forms of religious worship, uh, an enormous percentage of Americans are still uh, practicing Christians or Jews or Muslims or, or, or any other type of religion. And so um, if we're trying to make change on a, on a large scale, um, and I think one of, the, one of the concerns that a lot of donors have with uh, bridge building work is that sometimes they feel like it's too small or it's just little small groups doing dialogue and things like that. We believe in change at scale. And so we believe that working with religious communities is a way to reach millions and millions of Americans. But it's also who we are uh, as an organization. Um, our staff, our board uh, come from diverse uh, backgrounds, diverse religious beliefs, some, some of no religious belief at all. But from the beginning, um, we have been centered on working with communities of faith 
um, because that's that is the the the, the community that we represent. Um, and so we believe that faith calls people up to something higher, and that in a time when you have people who are divided, who see their political affiliation as essentially religious in nature, um, religion itself, uh, when done right, is a way to bring people towards a, a sort of a value system that's that's higher than partisan politics, uh, and moves us in the right direction. Not so much about getting people to be more purple or more moderate or centrist but getting people to be the best version of themselves and, and getting them to be called to a, a, a higher value system that, that, uh, that values every human life. So how do you do it? How do you tackle this toxic polarization problem as you guys label it? What are some of these key programs that you're using these churches to and, and synagogues and mosques, et cetera, to bring people together? Yeah, absolutely. So we do bring Americans together across divides to work on issues that matter in their community. So we believe that's really critical. So there's a lot of research behind um, what's effective and what's not effective when you get people from different backgrounds to work together. And one of the things that's really effective is when they have a shared goal. So we believe that, you know, we, we're coming out of a pandemic. We've got... Uh, people living in poverty. We've got uh, small businesses that can't find anyone to hire. Um, we've got racism and and uh, continued inequality. We've got um, you know all sorts of challenges, the opioid crisis that we have to face. And so, rather than just have people have conversations, the core of our work that brings people together is to bring them together around things that matter to them in their community. So I'm a I'm a Republican. You're a Democrat, but we both care about homelessness in our city, or we both care about the opioid crisis. At the same time, we know that a lot of this polarization comes not because people don't know each other, but because people are being activated in ways that make them sort of the worst version of themselves. And so we spend a lot of our time not just bringing people together, but working inside groups. How do we make Christians the best version of Christians? How do we make Jews the best version of Jews? And so we help rabbis and pastors and other leaders um, do this work within their community. Right. So not just about connecting with someone who's different from them, but having hard conversations and having, um, uh, you know, work done in the community that they represent so that that community does not contribute to this sort of toxic division. So for those of us in a faith community, are there things that we can do? I mean, you know, I don't lead a church, but I'm in a church. Mm -hmm. I I help lead from the ground of the church. What can somebody like me do to within our own places of worship to kind of foster this dialogue? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, luckily, it does not involve joining more committees because I know that's what most people are asked to do when they are a member of church. At least that's true of my experience. I'm Presbyterian. All we do is... Campus, so. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think the first the first thing is that when, when, I, when I talk to groups, I hear a lot of people, I, I ask people this question. I say, have you recently experienced a time when you've heard someone in your own group, your own political uh, sort of uh, tribe or whatever you want to call it, uh, express something that you agreed with and then go too far, right? Take it too far. Say something that's either uh, really hostile to another group or, um, uh, you know, conspiratorial in a way that's unhealthy or unhelpful or not true or racist or any of those sort of things. Every hand always goes up, right? So, the thing about a divided society is that we really don't care that much what people in other groups think. We care what people in our own group think. And what we most are worried about is getting kicked out of our own group. And so the loudest, most divisive people are really loud and divisive. And a lot of us are just silent because we, we just don't, the, the cost to speaking up is too high, right? And this is, this is how cancel culture sort of breeds. 
And so the number one thing we can do in our own group is say something when our own folks are, are being divisive or negative in a way that's not helpful. Um, it's, it's talk to other people who are silent and say, what did you think of that? Like, let's talk about that. Right. And not just let it go unchecked as the, this is what all people in our group think, uh, when you hear something that's loud and and negative. So I I think that's really critical is take care of home first, right? It's not about sharing the right link so that our uncle changes his mind. It's not about convincing the other side that they voted for the wrong person for president. It's about making sure that the group you're in is the best version of itself. I've seen that in my own experience in terms of the faith community always has something else that's more important, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It always has that higher calling, as you say. And so in theory, I think their strategy is really great because it does mean that there is something you can always come around together, even if there's these other issues. I've seen it in my own life, going to a fairly liberal church and being one of the the conservatives that gave each other secret handshakes uh, (laughs) there. And, but we still were great friends across the aisle. And and so I think that's great. Okay. So to wrap up, you say in your website that toxic polarization isn't a problem that is going to be fixed in a year or five years or even 50 years. Uh, that's a little disheartening. That's a little <laughs> scary. We want it to go away. And really, it's always been with us since the earliest days of the Republic. So how do you stay optimistic? Give it, Close us out with a note of hope. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I think um, you know most problems that we face in the world are not, are not going to fully go away in, in one or two or 50 years. But I think the nature of our division of our polarization is different now than it used to be. And that's why it's a problem, right? That's why it's toxic. It's not that conflict is bad. It's not that polarization is bad. Those things are normal and healthy in a society. I don't think any of us wants to live in an autocratic country where everyone is enforced to believe the same thing. The toxicity of it is, is a, is, is that it's a different nature of conflict. It's an unhealthy conflict. It's a, it's a conflict that fuels itself and isn't really about substance. It's about which team are you on? And the good news is, because this is a recent phenomenon, we are just now really rising to meet it. And I think that the, you know, just as someone who who started an organization to work on this problem four years ago, and we saw very little investment at that time and very little work being done. And over the last four years, that investment has significantly ramped up. And I think there's more interest from the media, from the philanthropic world. Uh, there's more interest from politicians themselves who feel trapped, I think, in this kind of toxic feedback loop. Uh, corporations, athletes. I mean, I think there's just like we are as a country rising to meet this challenge for the first time. And so while the challenge is significant, I have confidence that we will rise to meet this one just as we have so many others you know, over the course of our of our nation's history. And Andrew, if somebody wants to get connected with One America Movement, best place to start at the website, or what should, what's the first step people could take? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, OneAmericaMovement.org. We have um, public trainings on everything from how to talk to your neighbor to how do you confront disinformation to, um, you know, how do you shape norms in your group uh, to the science, the neuroscience of polarization. If you want to learn what's going on in your brain when your uncle or your nephew says something you don't like. So, um, you can check us out online and, and get involved in all sorts of different ways. Andrew Hanauer, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our first two guests focused on engaging real people out in the world in dialogue. Uh, and however, one might argue that the real driver of so much of the toxic polarization we see really comes from our political leaders. 
We speak wistfully of the days when Republicans and Democrats could talk civilly to one another and even came together to get major legislation passed in ways uh, other than just a party-line vote. Well, one group is, in fact, working to keep that spirit of bipartisanship alive, and that's the Bipartisan Policy Center. It's a true think tank, and it's been around since 2007, and has played an important role in helping congressional leaders come together on a number of key issues. Joining me from the center is Jackie Pfeffer-Merrill. She's the director of the Campus Free Expression Program there, and has been there with, for a number of years. She's going to help us understand this better. So, so Jackie, it's really hard to see legislators talking civilly about pretty much anything these days. So disabuse me of this fear, if you can, uh, that, that it's impossible. Are there some places where the Bipartisan Policy Center has really helped create not just dialogue, but actually cross-party progress? Thanks very much, uh, Peter, for the the chance to come uh, speak with you today about the Bipartisan Policy Center. Um, We really are focused on um, opportunities to to work across principal disagreement for constructive compromise. Uh, BPC was actually founded by four former Senate majority leaders, uh, two Republicans, two Democrats, uh, Howard Baker, Tom Daschle, George Mitchell, and Bob Dole, whose whose death we're just uh, you know mourning uh, as a country right right now. BBC brings together from both people from both sides of the aisle, and we're actually the only organization registered in the District of Columbia that has the word bipartisan in its name. So um, that's our our focus and our our mission. And I would love to tell you about some of the kinds of work that we're we're doing to make bipartisanship still possible uh, in this uh, day and age. Well, good. Well, I'm I'm glad you're still optimistic. You're giving me some hope. So let's let's dive into one of these projects. You head up a critically important one, which is the Campus Free Expression Project. So why is the Bipartisan Policy Center, which you know, as my understanding, is mostly focused on Capitol Hill, working with those congressional leaders, our, our state houses. Why are they focused on college campuses? It's something that we really see as, as mission critical for us, and it is an unusual project for the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is mostly focused on on um, bringing uh, legislative or policy proposals to Capitol Hill and to the state houses. Uh, but we have had a council of former governors, and um, they really uh, r- raised the issue of how important it is to raise uh, and prepare this generation of college students to be people who are, are able to work constructively, to give others a hearing, um, and to work with those with whom they disagree. So they, um, two of them in particular, uh, Chris Gregoire, the former governor, governor of Washington, and Jim Douglas, the former governor of Vermont, um, suggested that we at BBC start a campus free expression um, project. And uh, they actually, those two, uh, Governors Gregoire and Douglas, just led our task force on campus free expression that brought out its its report um, just last week with recommendations for campus leaders about how to foster a, a, a free expression campus culture. So how do you do that? What are the big, big results of that? The kind of results and recommendations that we have really came out of the group that we had together. So in addition to the the former um, governors that we had, we had um, six presidents or, or former presidents, a faculty member, a 2020 alumnus, a somebody who comes from the um, a student affairs background and is now a vice president at uh, at, a, at a Hispanic serving institution. So we had a, a lot of different kinds of leaders, uh, somebody who serves at a Hispanic serving institution, two denominational campuses, 
um, publics and privates, uh, historically black college and universities. So we really represented the diversity of higher education and the diversity of perspectives within higher education on that task force. And we came up with recommendations for all the components of campus, uh, student affairs, trustees, um, athletics even, as well as presidents. And just kind of a, what we really think of as from mom- the moment students arrive on campus, making freedom of expression a part of freshman orientation for students so they get a sense of what that means as part of their collegiate experience, you know, all the way through how um, trustees participate in college governance. So we really tried to offer a lot of practical recommendations that can be adopted um, by different elements of the campus community. And is there some hope that if the campuses can start getting this right, that trickles up to the policy community? Absolutely. I mean, we have a a, um, a national civic skills deficit, and we need to have colleges and universities uh, raising the bar for for national discourse. I think it's actually very hard to do right now in a, in a time where social media has really changed how people talk to each other, you know, off campus and on campus. Um, how polarized the whole country is, and that comes off campus onto campus. And it's really important for for colleges and universities as part of their charge to focus on building the skills of having conversation across difference, um, you know, cultivating those habits of mind to be, you know, skeptical. Uh, The virtues of resilience, uh, I can tolerate it when somebody who has has a view that's really um, different from my own. And just, um, you know, the the skills of civic courage to say things when I know other people are going to disagree. And the skill of really, really giving others a hearing and drawing them out and and letting yourself be drawn out in conversation. I think that is... um, you know, students need to learn kind of uh, whatever it is that is their major, but they need to learn those those skills too. And I think um, we really give in the task force report a lot of practical recommendations for faculty and for student affairs staff and for for presidential presidents and their their leadership teams to address those skills deficits that we have as a country. So let's zoom out from the academic work to some of the many many other policy issue areas. I mean, you're a true think tank, like I said, and you've got a lot of different pieces. What are some of the areas where you feel BPC has really been able to make traction in terms of the issue areas that matter on Capitol Hill? Yeah, I I really want to focus on um, one that is really important, which is making Congress work better. Um, we, we We are really focused on the, the institution of Congress and the, the culture of Congress. So uh, BPC has been really um, active in supporting the, the committee, uh, the, the House Select Committee to Modernize Congress that started in the 116th Congress and continuing in the 117th Congress. Um, in fact, new reforms were just passed in the, in the first week of December um, about all the kinds of ways that can make Congress work better from better you know, technology, better um, kind of things that reta- help retain uh, House staff, uh, rules that, you know, make more sense. So having Congress itself work better is something that BPC has been very active in and, and testifying before Congress, uh, you know, to that select committee and participating in other ways. But one of the things that BPC has done just on its own is it's uh, 
American Congressional Exchange Program that we are really um, excited about. Uh, even this year, with all the challenges of the pandemic, we were able to have nine of these trips. And what we do is we pair a, a Republican member of Congress and a Democratic member of Congress, and they each go travel, and you know, there's a pair. Uh, first to one of their districts and then to the other of the districts. And, um, you know, uh, we have, a, in fact, a, a new video out that your listeners can, can find uh, featuring a visit of uh, Ed Case of Representative of Hawaii, a Democrat, and, and Chris Stewart, Representative from Utah, Republican, um, and just how they found visiting, um, being, being in the other's district, um, made them understand more where the constituencies are um, encouraging their leaders to have or the representatives certain views and, and creating those kind of friendships that were much more common amongst people in Congress a couple decades ago or a generation ago and uh, really paved the way for um, working together constructively in Congress. We forget how much cross-pollination there was in the restaurants and bars of D.C. or even just in the, the apartments and things uh, back in, quote unquote, back in the day. So the Congressional Exchange Program is a neat one. Uh, very interesting. Are there other efforts that you all are doing to help improve the, the overall discourse of civil society? Yeah. One other one that I've had a chance to um, work on uh, along with my uh, colleagues and at BBC Action is is our, our work to try to improve the, the education in civics and to really restore the, the deficit that we have in the country about how our governing institutions work and, and about our, our U.S. history work. So in the, in the last Congress, uh, we really worked um, to advance uh, the USA Civics Act. Uh, in this 117th Congress, is the Civic Secures Democracies Act, uh, co-sponsored by uh, Chris Kuhn and, and, and John Cornyn, so in a bipartisan range of both sponsors in the, the House side as, as well as in the, those uh, senators, Cornyn and Coons, in, in the Senate. And that legislation will provide additional um, support for colleges and universities, having uh, programs and institutes that really introduce students to you know primary documents about our, our founding and constitutional uh, principals uh, would provide additional support for teacher preparation so that teachers being uh, educated at our colleges and universities know more about uh, our, our founding founding documents and, and principles and our history, uh, as well as uh, support for programs uh, at the K-12 level too. So you know, one thing that we can do to get past this polarized moment is really help people understand our 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 history and our governing institutions and principles better. So that's been an exciting thing that BPC has been really active on and working with Coons and Cornyn on, on that uh, effort. Is there a benchmark or a finish line? Is there some way to know that the work you all are doing is really having the intended effect? We really look for um, seeing that the recommendations that we have made in our various task forces and, and working groups, you know, appearing in legislation, appearing in, in regulations, um, in in shaping the, the ways in which people work together. So th- those are the kinds of wins that we are looking for and credit ourselves with, you know, being 
the only organization that is kind of tries deliberately to be bipartisan uh, in this way. Well, Jackie, appreciate the work that you and the Bipartisan Center are doing. It's important work and we need more of it. So keep at it. Thanks very much. So what do you think? Is there hope for overcoming this toxic polarization? It is striking that the Bipartisan Policy Center is the only nonprofit registered in D.C. with the word bipartisan in its name, isn't it? While there may not be as many groups focused on these issues as some other issues, I, for one, am happy to know that there are some organizations making the effort. I like what John Wood said about the idea of patriotic empathy, this idea that there is essentially a civic duty to try and approach others with a sense of understanding, even if we disagree. What perhaps resonated and maybe even convicted me the most was Andrew Hanauer's point that the best thing we can do is speak up inside of our own communities and, as he said, take care of home first, because the one thing we really control is whether we are showing up as the best version of ourselves. We're releasing this episode in the midst of the holiday season, where many are willing to make a little bit more effort towards kindness and being forgiving. I hope we all leverage that. And I hope that this included some ideas that you can take out into the world. Our blog post on this episode will have links to all these groups, so you can look into them more, maybe even support them if it's a fit for your giving. By the way, one thing I really appreciate about our Donors Trust community is the breadth of interests our clients have. Yes, they all have a view that believes in limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise, but that doesn't mean they all have a monolithic approach to solving problems. We have clients that come down on either side of a number of hot-button issues. The diversity in philanthropy is a strength, I would argue. If you're looking for a donor-advised fund that appreciates that diversity of thought, we'd welcome the chance to be a partner in your giving. Well, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe so you get future episodes straight into your podcast player of choice. You can also go to donorstrust.org slash podcast and enter your email there, and you'll get a note every time we release an episode. And if you have thoughts or feedback, I'm always interested to hear that. Email us at tellmemore at donorstrust.org. And finally, if you think this information will resonate with someone you know, I hope you'll share this episode with them. Thank you again for listening. Let's talk more soon. Thank you.